This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the Center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The federal government depends on effective senior leadership. It is as important an element as can be found in today's public service, one which will determine whether government programs will be run efficiently and produce the performance and results citizens expect and deserve. The legacy of today's senior public service leaders can be to leave behind the people, the culture, and the systems in place that ensures public service truly serves the American people. It is also important for senior government leaders who are moving on from public service to share their reflection on the work they did and the missions they pursued. Today, I'm happy to welcome David Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau, to reflect on his public service career and his leadership role within the federal government. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So, Dave, uh, before we get into your career uh, and your leadership roles, it'd be interesting to understand the mission and continuing evolution of the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Administration, FEMA, and the Mission Support Bureau, which you have led um, until recently. Could you tell us a little more about that? I'd be happy to. Um, FEMA has a great mission. It's, it's a joy to work there, for, for one. FEMA has the responsibility to coordinate the entire federal response to a disaster. And that could be a natural disaster or man-made disaster. Uh, really, any disaster that hits this country, FEMA has a responsibility to lead the federal response. So it affects every citizen or potentially affects every citizen uh, in the country, every person in the country. Uh, within mission support, it is really the, the CXO suite, all of the, the support organizations. And so it is critical. It really has to be a symbiotic relationship between the support organizations and what I call the forward-facing mission, uh, the response, recovery, preparedness, mitigation, et cetera. They all have an outward-facing mission to the, to the people of this country, and the mission support uh, office supports those forward-facing offices. So we have to function so they can function. You alluded to some of the forward-facing um, programs. How many people are in those areas? And, and also with the MSB, how is that organized too? Just to give everybody a sense of what the... So FEMA writ large um, is a smaller agency than you might, uh, you might uh, think. We have three different groups of employees. We have permanent full-time employees, a lot like I was for, mm -hmm. for my career. We have about, give or take, 5,000 of those. Interesting. We have um, core employees, and those are cadre of on-call response and recovery. It's a long acronym. Think of them as temporary full-time employees. They're on board for 
uh, one, two, three, or four-year contract periods. And then we have – and there's maybe – depending, they, they all work on disaster. So that can fluctuate. Those numbers come and go. But generally speaking, about three to 5,000 were on board at any one time. And then we have a cadre of reservists that we can call into active duty – uh, should a disaster require. And we have a probably a list of fifteen to 20,000 of those people around the country, and we can call them in. And depending on the level of disaster, that number can obviously fluctuate and can be very, very fungible. Uh, right now, FEMA probably has over 15,000 people that are actively working uh, for FEMA. So that's one of the challenges <laughs> that we have is to manage a very different kind of workforce than most federal agencies. Now, the national scope, uh, it's truly national. Uh, and and uh, OCONUS, you know, outside the continental United States, we have to go, obviously, you've seen some of the, uh, the difficulties in going to Puerto Rico, Guam, Marianas Islands, um, Alaska, uh, Hawaii, all of these are outside the continental United States and make it uh, add complexity to servicing the mission there. Um, so it's, it's truly uh, a very difficult mission, but a, a very important mission. Now, within mission support, we then have to be prepared to support that uh, as well. So we have to have equipment. We have to have people. We have to train people. We have to acquire the goods and services that can literally be deployed wherever they're needed. So prior to you leaving public service, uh, you were uh, the associate administrator of the MSB, but you were also acting deputy administrator. Could you give us a sense of, of both roles and how did they complement one another? I'll start with the uh, my real permanent job, which was the associate administrator for mission support. It's a great job. That, as I mentioned earlier, is is uh, where the CXO suite is. So, so basically, all the support organizations, um, procurement, IT human capital, security, real estate, administrative support, et cetera. And that is the support organization for the entire mission of, of FEMA. So we provide all the goods and services and products and people and training and stuff that FEMA needs to meet its mission. The deputy administrator position uh, really was a, was a wonderful opportunity. I was surprised to have that opportunity. I was privileged to have it, honored to have it, and really gave me the opportunity to see how that forward-facing mission, the public-facing mission of, of FEMA, uh, really impacts all of the states, the localities, the tribal areas, the territorial areas, and is supported. So it's it's that seamless point where it all comes together. It was quite a challenge, especially during this past year. Uh, this was the probably the most challenging hurricane season we've had in in ten to fifteen years. It's it was a uh, uh, a real honor to watch those folks work. Yeah. Do you just as an aside? Uh, you mentioned hurricanes, and it, 2017 was tough. But would you were you guys involved with the fires too? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Really, any, any disaster, any natural, disaster, any, any, any natural man-made or man-made disaster. Yeah, exactly. So during during the fires in California, uh, which came about during mudslides, and the mudslides, <laughs> and, mud and 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 quite frankly, uh, they are most worried right now about mudslides because the the fires take away all of that underbrush and vegetation, which tends to hold. The ground, the the uh, the topsoil in place. Without it, then you get a, a flash flood easily that turns into a mudslide. You know, as I was leaving, what FEMA was most concerned with, and and uh, Region Nine, Bob Fenton is an outstanding leader in, in that area, really working on debris removal because when you have a mudslide and you have trees and cars and rocks and everything that are uh, there and pieces of houses and all kinds of things, and that turns into you know, quite almost a weapon as it yeah. rolls down the hill. A very big initiative right now to work on the debris removal, uh, which, of course, the mission support office is supporting through contracting and, and mission assignments and things like that. That kind of gets to my next question, which is as you, you gain 
some perspective over time since you've left. And maybe you could tell us what your top management challenges were in your previous role. And how did you tackle those challenges? I'm not sure I would answer it quite that way, but but I'll say it's people. Okay. Uh, when you think about FEMA, it's, it's really people. The challenge is to make sure that we have the right people, that we have enough of them, that they are trained, they, they are experienced, and they're empowered and enabled with the right uh, material, information, and computers and everything else to actually work because we're the arm of the federal government. So if we don't have the right people and we're not able to put them in the right place to support the state and the localities, then we're not doing our job. So it's it's really important that we focus on and have focused on. We've gotten a lot better in the last three or four years in getting you know our hiring process down, uh, getting our training process uh, uh, refocused, and they've done a great, great job. And, and you just look at this past fall, we had to bring on thousands of people um, in a very short order, get them to the right place, equip them with the right um, pieces of equipment, and give them the right information mm-hmm. in order to support the disaster for the state and locality. So uh, I would say people, it's its both the challenge and a reward at the same time because sure. those are the folks that are literally working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month. And we had, we had folks that were working 50, 60 days in a row without time off working 12 to 14 hours a day, a tremendous sacrifice on their part, their family's part. Uh, but it's for the good of the country. And, and that's what I've been most amazed at, uh, just to watch that dedication across the agency. So would you tell us about your time working within the federal government? And where I'm going with this is what lessons have you learned from your time in public service? That's a good question. There's a lot of lot of lessons you learn along along the way, but if I could wrap it up, it sure. would be uh, a continuation of what I just m- talked about a moment ago with people. Mm-hmm. Um, people are the most important uh, asset that any agency has because the people are the ones that are implementing the mission uh, and communication. If uh, if those people are not fully on board or aware of what your mission is and 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 the tools that they have to get their mission done and the support that they have and the, and the delegated authority then they're not going to be able to get their job done you're you're going to sort of miss the mark so it's it's really important again to have the right people but also communicate and engage and make sure that that we're on the same page one of the themes that I saw with sort of the best leaders I've ever worked for are those folks who attracted people who were smarter than they are because uh, the farther you go up in the organization, frankly, the less knowledgeable you are of all the different areas that, you, that you're leading. And you're not the smartest person in the room. You, have to <laughs> you realize that pretty, pretty early on when you get into leadership position. And it's important to attract people who are, in fact, better and smarter than you are at the various areas that you're leading. And then you have to engage them. You have to empower them. You have to listen to them. And you have to guide them. So that that would be probably the lesson that I learned in in watching uh, in my 34 and a half years. Well, you know, I mean, it gets to the next question is who ha- has influenced your leadership style and management approach? Are there any people in particular? Um, one of the things that I learned, it's not people necessarily that you work for. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my mentors are people who actually worked for me. Um, so I'll get to that story in a minute. But I would say my first real exposure to, to great leadership was up at CECOM, the Communication Electronics Command up at Fort Monmouth, where I got into contracting and I worked for for guys like uh, Jim Glowacki and Carl Teagan in particular. Uh, Carl was great and really challenged me. One of the themes I found in my career are, are really good leaders challenge you and expect more out of you than you think that you, you've done before or that you know that you've done before or think you can do. And, and Carl was certainly good at that. 
And then when I came to IRS and I spent about 20 years there, I had the great pleasure of working for uh, Greg Rothwell, a uh, real leader in the industry, Jim Williams. But I'll give you the example uh, before I leave IRS of uh, when I first became the director of procurement at IRS, a woman uh, who worked for me, Linda Barrett, who uh, unfortunately has passed away. She's a wonderful lady. I actually brought her in the office and I closed the door and I said, Linda, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> and uh, she said, don't worry, we got this. I mean, she had confidence in me, which I didn't have, quite frankly, um, at that point. And we sat down and mapped out a plan for my first week, my first month, my first year. Uh, I used her as a mentor for the remainder of my tenure in that job. Uh, she was a tremendously smart woman and very dedicated to making the organization successful. I learned a tremendous amount from her. So that's an example of someone who worked for me, who actually guided me uh, through some tough times. And then when I came to FEMA, you know, I had the, the, the pleasure of working for David Robinson, uh, who was the associate administrator at the time. Joe Nimick was maybe one of the best leaders I've ever worked for as well. He was the deputy administrator. Um, he's now uh, he's now out. Uh, he was a political appointee. So so I've had the pleasure of working for some great folks. And you know, back to the IRS uh, when I got into some senior leadership. Uh, Linda Stiff was the deputy commissioner. Uh, she's outstanding. Uh, Beth Tucker was outstanding. Um, so I, I really had the the sort of pleasure and honor of working for some very successful, smart people that uh, that I learned more from than than I ever got from than they ever gave than I ever gave to them. Put it that way. What has FEMA's Mission Support Bureau done to improve its performance? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How were the initial cross-agency priority goals or CAP goals implemented? What has been the impact of the initial CAP goals? How can we improve the implementation of the next round of CAP goals? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with John Kamensky, senior fellow with the IBM Center and author of Cross-Agency Collaboration, a case study of cross-agency priority goals, next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is David Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau. So, Dave, during your tenure at FEMA, what were your key strategic priorities, and how did you go about pursuing those priorities? Let me answer that in a couple of different parts. When I came in as uh, the lead for procurement, we were very sort of a fractured organization. Um, I call it an inch deep and a mile wide. And we took on a change management process to really focus on the aggregate needs of the agency. 
And uh, instead of buying onesie and twosie things for everybody, we tried to bring things together because like any other organization, we were challenged for resources and we needed to be more efficient. And frankly, we need to do a little bit better job in getting those items and those services together. So we actually aggregated those together and started really looking at uh, the customer and what they needed. One of the questions I like to ask in procurement and then, and then when I got into the associate administrator role for all of the CXOs, isn't just what product do you need or what service do you need, but what's the mission you're trying to meet? Because if you start at that point, you can oftentimes bring other ideas to bear than just that one PC or that one pen or that one widget that you might be looking at. There might be other ways to get there. So I always like to start with what is the mission you're trying to meet. Also in procurement, we grew our pre-position contracts from maybe 12 to 15 or so contracts that were there that are pre-positioned. So prior to a disaster happening, we would have contracts in place that we could then just quickly issue task orders against. We've grown them to, uh, I think my last meeting with Mr. McCain, Bobby McCain, who's now leading procurement is, uh, over the past three or four years, we've grown that to about 50 or 60 contracts. That eases the kind of procurement support. You don't really want to be um, rediscovering the wheel, reinventing the wheel uh, during the disaster. You want to just pick up the contract and go. So that, what that means is you have to work with the customer ahead of time. We, we tried to aggregate data with our response and recovery folks and really figure out what is it that a typical disaster would need from the private sector. And we start to gather those needs and pre-position contracts so that we're ready to go as soon as the disaster would, would occur. Um, that same theory and that same approach works across mission support. So if I, we can move into that area for, for a while, um, our uh, human capital office, Corey Coleman, has done a great job with working with the, the customer bases across FEMA. And, and we're going to get into some more about FEMA in a minute. It's not just response recovery. There's a pretty wide aperture of responsibility within FEMA. But to really work with the customer base and to figure out what are the kinds of people that you anticipate you're going to need for a growing and, and varying set of responsibilities and, and really get those into the position descriptions, into the job announcement so that we're recruiting the right people. One of the worst things that can happen is you put an announcement out, you get two or 300 applicants, and you have five openings and you only hire two people because the wrong people are, are applying. And so that means you really have to meet with those customers ahead of time and figure out what are the attributes you're looking for and then figure out how to describe that and where and how to solicit for those people. So it's really getting ahead of uh, of the game. You don't want to be reactive. You want to be proactive. You can say the same thing for, uh, for IT. Where do you want to be with your IT services? I'm going to quote uh, Mr. Nimick, who was the former deputy administrator and retired Coast Guard Admiral, a great leader. I mentioned him earlier. Um, he referred to IT and FEMA as the same thing as the boats and planes are to Coast Guard. They are the tools through which we implement our mission. And we have to tightly couple uh, that IT mission with the customer needs. And so, again, that's proactive communication uh, up front. One of the things we did, again, in the uh, chief administration officer area, uh, originally headed by Bob Waltemeyer, who's since gone on to VA and now headed by uh, Tracy, really getting down to what are your needs in the facility? You know, how much space do you need? One of the decisions that the previous administration made is that we wanted to go to a more telework-friendly environment, 
and we wanted to go to a more open environment. So we're hoteling now in, in all of our, we call it workplace of tomorrow. And so we have built spaces where people will collaborate and work openly instead of in the little cube farms. You actually know who's in the office and you can stand up and look at them and walk across and go find them, pick up your laptop, walk across the hall uh, and sit down and talk with someone. So uh, that takes, again, a lot of communication and proactive work with the customers to figure out what are the environments that you need, what kind of meeting rooms do you need, what kind of team rooms do you need, what kind of Wi-Fi do you need in, in the building. You know, all of these things you have to to work with the customers prior to doing your action so that when you're doing your action, you can actually meet their needs, their mission needs. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's take IT. i just like to drill down a little bit. Prior to you, right before you left, what were some of the things that you were pursuing to enhance the IT infrastructure at FEMA? And, you know, what were some of the challenges you were facing? Well, I think some of the same challenges that most people in government, we have, we have uh, a huge demand for IT services, um, we have an aging infrastructure, uh, and we're extraordinarily concerned about security, just as everyone is. Cybersecurity is, uh, is a huge uh, risk to the agency, as it is to almost every federal agency. So trying to get an aging infrastructure secure and meeting the emerging needs uh, of the customer base that's a triumvirate of problems that probably every agency has. So one of the things that we're doing is trying to go mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, we, ch- we want to bring our services to the survivor, not the survivor to our services. What's an example of that? Years ago, we might have set up um, like a tent in an abandoned parking lot uh, at a disaster, and we would have folks walk up and we would provide services to them there. Now we try and give our direct servicing agents an iPad and we fan them out into the neighborhood. So they'll knock on your door um, that has been, you know, your home has been damaged, but it's still livable. We'll knock on your door, uh, ask what we can do. We'll sign you up right there. Uh, We'll make sure we get all your information, try and sign you up where you are instead of where we are. Well, that takes IT. We need to have mobile services. We need to have those applications that are mobile. Um, and that takes uh, working with the customer and developing new applications, new technologies, and deploying them while keeping them secure. That's a tough job. You come from a procurement background, as you pointed, when you were at IRS and uh, also at FEMA initially, right? So what were some of the more, uh, you know, some of the accomplishments that you did in the area of procurement strategy for FEMA that you're most proud of? Well, I think the pre-position contracts was a big uh, a big step forward because it allowed the customers to feel comfortable that they had their tools in the tool belt ready to go. They were comfortable that uh, their requirements were being met. And that allowed us to then, during the disaster, focus on those things that are on the fringes. You, one of the things that I haven't mentioned yet is every disaster is different. Yep. There is no such thing as a hurricane being repeated. Every every hurricane is different. You saw that with Harvey and Irma and, and, and Jose and everything else. They're just different. And so you can put preposition contracts in place, but I guarantee you there are going to be some that you don't have in place and you're going to need some additional support. But getting the preposition contracts in place allows you to then concentrate your best resources on the emerging needs as they happen and you're, you can deal with them uh, much more easily. So I think the preposition contracts is a big one. Uh, the second one is actually consolidating requirements across the agency. Uh, when we first got there, uh, we had folks that were you know, doing yeoman's work, really just uh, uh, working terribly hard. Um, one anecdote I might tell you is when I first got there, having come from IRS, IT was sort of the biggest thing we bought. Uh, the IT branch at FEMA at the time was maybe our seventh or tenth largest branch as far as buying. I thought that was interesting. 
You know, I didn't expect that. As it turned out, it was because we were buying IT in almost every brand, procurement branch we had. So we wanted to consolidate. So we actually reorganized a little bit and re-implemented our process, uh, redefined it is probably a better word, and we consolidated all of that IT into one branch. And I think we've become far more efficient and, frankly, gotten better product and service for uh, our customers, as, as an example. Yeah, during our conversation, you've pointed out the importance of people to the execution of FEMA's uh, mission. You know, how hard or how different, maybe the right way to put this, is it to find the right people and the human capital strategy that you need in order to recruit, retain, or hire the folks at, uh, in a relief or emergency response discipline as opposed to a, you know, a typical federal agency? Well, our previous uh, administrator, Mr. Fugate, was, was great, and, and I think Mr. Long believes the same thing. It takes a special kind of person to want to work at FEMA. And uh, it generally attracts people who want to go toward the problem as a way, as a as a, uh, opposed to staying away from the problem, and therefore there are challenges with that. Uh, at FEMA, every employee is an emergency manager, meaning every employee is subject to being deployed. During this past fall, we had eighty percent of FEMA was deployed either in place uh, to, frankly, another function rather than your home job, or you were, you were deployed to the field. So 80% of the agency was deployed to work on an active disaster. Every employee's emergency manager. You have to want to do that because, as I said, you're working on that disaster uh, usually 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. And that means that's a big impact on your family. It's a big impact in your personal life. Uh, if you're deployed to Puerto Rico or to Houston or to Florida during disasters, you're gone 30, 60, 90, 120, 180 days. You will come home every, one, probably once a month at best, maybe once every two months. So it's a big commitment for the employee. It's a big commitment to the nation. Uh, and I applaud them. I mean, to, to sit there and watch every day and watch these people work. Um, we had one employee, actually it was, and my old contracting officer uh, days will come out in me. I was the... It, these were going on during the end of fiscal year. So one of our procurement folks who was uh, uh, one of the leads in RCC, that's the National Response Coordination Center, was working his 12-hour shift. I think the workload was such that he stayed on for the next 12-hour shift to help out. The next that day when he came off duty uh, was the last day of the fiscal year. He stayed at work. Uh, until 8 o'clock that night to make sure that everything got done. He's one of our division chiefs. He worked 36 straight hours to try and get the mission done. So it takes a real commitment, and it's not for everyone, quite frankly. But it's important. That's part of the human capital process. We inform people when they apply and when they interview that this is the environment you're walking into. You are an emergency manager. You could be in contracting. You could be in finance. You could be in IT. You could be in response, recovery, preparedness, mitigation, whatever the case might be. When the disaster happens, every employee is an emergency manager, and you have to want to do that. And we've had people who have said they're not interested in that, and I respect that. And we've had more and more and more people want to do that. The number of applicants we get that want to come to that environment is actually uh, – it's empowering to watch. It really is, is to watch those people who are dedicated to help the country in a time of need. Is, uh, it's, it's been a, a, a real good fortune on my part to watch that. You know, earlier you mentioned that uh, one of the things you were doing is making uh, FEMA more uh, mobile, um, changing the composition and arrangement of offices and what have you, uh, creating a more, I, I gather, collaborative work uh, environment. How hard was that to do? In the context of FEMA, which is, you know, these folks are on call, 
So it would seem a lot easier than most agencies, I'm assuming. And what were some of the obstacles and what's the status so far? Well, actually, you, you hit a good point there. As, uh, as our former administrator said, we have to be mobile. Yeah. So if people f- are, in fact, chained to their cube to do their job, when the disaster happens, how are we going to get it done? So we have to be mobile no matter what. You, you, forget the example of the iPads earlier where direct servicing agents would go out to the, to the field. We need folks who can do their job from a joint field office or a JFO, from a regional office, from headquarters office, from an office that we just set up in the middle of nowhere. So uh, we have to be mobile. And if you can't be mobile in that environment, then, then you, we can't get our mission done. So going to the hoteling, the open, open work environment is actually just a natural extension from that. In that sense, you're right. It, it was the right thing to do and therefore not that hard. On the other hand, change management is always hard. <laughs> Anytime you're in an office that has been set up with the cubes and with separate offices and every organization has their own piece of the, the acreage, so to speak, in the building, and you're now mixing and matching that up, that's tough. You have to, you have to make sure, first of all, a simple thing like making sure the Wi-Fi works throughout the building. There aren't dead spots. That if you're setting it up for a collaborative open space work environment and someone picks up their laptop on floor two and moves to floor seven and goes to a meeting and can't connect to the Wi-Fi, there's a problem. It's not effective. So we ha- we in Mission Support have to make sure that it all works. That's the, the behind the scenes thing. So it's tough. Secondly, it takes investment up front because it will, in fact, become more efficient. We actually went from nine different buildings in the metro area in D.C. down to just our headquarter campus, uh, which is great. It saved us a couple of million dollars a year in rent, but it takes investment in the first couple of years to actually do it because we have to build out the space. We have to move people. You know, move costs money. So in the first couple of years, it costs money, and the subsequent years, you save money. So, you know, I I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Craig Fugate, and I know Craig's perspective um, uh, on emergency management was a whole-of-community approach. I, I was wondering, during your tenure, could you, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about that concept? Are you familiar with it? Sure. Yes, probably. And then during your tenure, how did you seek to build stronger ties with you know, components within DHS, other federal agencies, and the private sector? Um, well, I can tell you that, that Brock fully embraces that as well, Brock Long, our current administrator. The idea that, uh, that any federal agency, FEMA, could swoop into any disaster and take over and provide uh, all the services uh, that a survivor would need is, is frankly a fallacy. There just isn't an agency that can do that. The most effective support for a survivor is the closest support to the survivor. So the more a state and locality are prepared to support their local citizenry, the better off we are. So the whole of community within FEMA approaches it that way. We have a preparedness organization. They are actually training they offer training courses to first responders and to emergency man- state emergency management coordination offices, localities. We actually have a couple thousand courses that we actually train people across the country to make sure that there is a common approach to doing that. So that's the first part. We train people across the country. Secondly, we take after-action reports from the disaster. We're doing after-action reports right now that will bleed into that training and then the exercises. The other thing that, that our preparedness group does is they run exercises both internally and externally. We'll run exercises with state, with multi-states, with jurisdictions, with tribal, with territory to test those 
uh, approaches to make sure that we've thought of things that might not have been thought of on paper. You want to exercise them. That helps you prepare. Then you get into the response and recovery, and that really brings in all the other agencies across government. I mentioned earlier the NRCC, the National Response Coordination Center, uh, which has you know, 200, 250 people in it when that's activated. And there is someone from almost every agency in government, you know, EPA, GSA, uh, Department of Defense, multiple agencies within Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, HUD, wherever, wherever there might be an impact on the survivor, we have representatives there. And those people are empowered to actually start making decisions. That whole of community from the federal uh, level is important. FEMA is responsible not to do everything, but to coordinate everything across government. So we will bring in the Corps of Engineers and NORTHCOM from DOD and HUD and EPA and transportation, wherever the case might be. Because again, this is a multi-kind of disaster. It could be a, a chemical spill on a train. It could be an earthquake. It could be a hurricane, a tornado. It could be anything. And we have to coordinate that across the, the federal government. And then the whole of community includes state and local. We have to work with the state and local officials. We are actually there to support the state. We are not there to directly support the survivor unless the state asks us to. Our job is to support Texas, is to support Puerto Rico, is to support Florida, whatever the case might be. And that means that we have to have the whole of community. It can't just be one agency coming in. One of the initiatives I know Brock has talked about both in testimony and publicly is he wants to uh, increase our presence in a state uh, emergency management office on a day-to-day -day basis. We call that a blue sky day mm -hmm. so that we have folks that are embedded within the state, working with them in preparedness, in exercises, in training, in processes. And then when what we call the black sky day happens, when the event happens, those people just put a different hat on. They're already there. We don't have to deploy someone and get up to speed with what the state of Missouri or the state of Alaska or the state of Florida might need. We have somebody that's already there. That's one of the goals he has. And that, I think, further enhances that whole of community approach. Now, that's, we're not there yet with that, but, uh, but that's one of the goals he has. How does FEMA plan for the next disaster? We will explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology 
and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is David Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau. So, uh, Dave, recognizing that each disaster is a singularity of sort, that each hurricane has its own unique path and consequential impact, and I think you mentioned in one of your interviews when you were actually at FEMA that, you know, there's no real earthquake season. I think I heard you say that once. You know, something I was remiss not bringing up, with all that understood, could you perhaps give us, walk us through some of the key steps um, in the process that gets FEMA involved and triggers um, the state and local uh, authorities to contact FEMA, get them involved? And then what are some of the key actions that comprise disaster relief? Well, let, let's start uh, at your first point, which is no disaster is the same. We used to, to joke with Mr. Long that uh, he's an extraordinarily bright guy. And, and one of the things he said when he came in that he was very worried about to make sure we're prepared for was a fast developing storm in the Gulf. And lo and behold, what happened uh, to uh, to Houston? We had the fast developing storm that literally, within I think 24 to 36 hours, went from a level two to a level four, uh, category four storm. And what made that unique wasn't that it was a category four hurricane. We have those, and we have some history with that. This one was extraordinarily slow moving. I mean, it moved incrementally. In in many hurricanes, you want to be prepared for storm surge. You want to be prepared for wind. You want to be prepared for flooding that might come with it. This storm, highly different. The storm surge was not good, but it wasn't terrible. The terrible part was the, the storm parked itself for days and just rained, inundated the area uh, with up to 50, 52 inches of rain in some areas, which, and then as it crept off and went away, then that flooding upstream started to come downstream and caused more flooding. So that's one unique aspect of that storm. And I'm not sure that we as a nation were prepared because it was so fast, fast mm-hmm. developing. It was a category two storm meandering around. And uh, 36 hours later, it was a category four uh, hitting the southeast coast and then not moving, parking itself. That's very different from like Jose that sort of skirted, you know, over the floor, in between Florida and New Orleans and went straight up uh, and then out. Very different storm. And you have to be prepared for both. So there is no such thing as one storm. There's no such thing as one disaster. You have to be prepared for anything that might come. That's the flexibility. You can have, just go back to my contracting days, the preposition contracts. But you have to be prepared for something to change. And, and as the whole agency, we have to be prepared for something to change. You could also have a disaster in one area that might be rural. Your response will be one way um, versus in, in, a, uh, in a city. When you go to uh, Houston, for example, for a large housing mission in the recovery area, there's really not an area that you can bring in the mobile housing units, the MHUs. There's just not large area swaths of land that you can come in and lay the power, lay the sewer, uh, and and park, you know, 5,000 units. Just that area is not there unless you wanted to move people farther away. Going back to your earlier question about whole of community, one of the things that, that FEMA's learned over the years is one of the best steps toward recovery is to keep the local population as local as possible. The local governments don't want their folks and the, and the folks don't want to leave their home. They don't want to go you know, 500 miles away while something is being done in their hometown. They'd like to stay as close as they can. So 
a very different response or recovery effort in the housing mission, for example, Houston versus a rural area where you might have area, the land to put in that. And we have to be prepared for both. Yeah. So what triggers FEMA to get involved? Is there a process that you could just a high level overview well, of that? Well, the, the, one, the one thing uh, that's changed is uh, the post-Katrina Reform Act, PCMRA, gives us the authority to commit and spend resources prior to the declaration Which by the president. Which comes from the governor or the president. Well, the, pres- the governor that? requests it. Yes, okay. And then we process it. We make a recommendation to to uh, the White House and then they, uh, they approve it or not. Once it's approved, then we can unleash all the resources that we need. And there are different levels of, of the request. So once the governor sees something coming, but we're working with them well in advance of that. It, for a hurricane, for example, when we see a hurricane coming from, you know, sort of across the Atlantic, we'll start working with uh, the weather service and start coming up with predictions on where it might go and start talking to those states, making sure, you know, what do they need? We'll, we'll deploy a team in advance to work in their state uh, emergency management office to start the communication process and so on. And then as it veers one direction or another, then we'll we'll start to laser focus that support to the areas that become more evident to be impacted. So we're working well in advance if we know it's coming. Of course, there is no such thing as you joked earlier about a, a earthquake season uh, that could happen at any moment. Um, the wildfires were a great example. Uh, I talked with Mr. Fenton one night, and uh, literally there was a small, small brush fire um, s- theoretically under control. And 12 hours later, uh, in the Napa Valley, it was expl- almost like an explosion of fire uh, ripping through the area that just uh, – uh, came almost. I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but I don't. I don't know if if uh, we could anticipate it growing as fast as it did. So um, we have to be able to to quickly respond to that and step in and support the state. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about um, how FEMA captures and learns uh, from previous uh, previous uh, events so that they can operate better going forward. So you mentioned after action reports. Could you give us a sense of how that process works? But more importantly, you know, you have all this information, you capture all the lessons that you've learned. How do you actualize them? Give us a sense of what (laughs) Those are good questions. Um, I think at its core, one of the things that I admired a lot about FEMA was it's a learning organization. Um, this is not an organization that stands pat. It's not an organization that is blind to itself or to its environment. It really is a learning organization. What I mean, mean by that is um, it can be self-critical. It can, it can analyze itself pretty effectively. It can figure out uh, and it's accepting as an organization, as part of the culture, that it accepts that things didn't go well. And because in, in any disaster, something didn't go well. I mean, it's just, as, as I said, it, there, it's, a there, <laughs> it's a definition of a disaster. It's a definition of a disaster. It's a better analogy I was going to use. Um, so things don't go well. And, and you have to be um, aware enough to, to talk about that and learn from that. And the goal is, is that you don't want to make the same mistake twice. So if something didn't go well on one, you want to learn from that. And so that's the after action report. We'll take a look at that. And that doesn't mean it's a big bureaucratic process. We were learning from things in Houston and deploying them in Florida a few weeks later and deploying that a few weeks later in, in Puerto Rico. So that action of learning and changing your processes can happen on the fly to some extent. But the more broad-range approach is to do the after-action report, and they'll take a look at everything, figure out what we did well, 
emphasize that in the training and the exercises. What we didn't do well, change that in the training exercises. And and the important thing to remember there is it's not just internal to FEMA. We'll put that in the training and exercises that go external to FEMA as well so that another state might have the opportunity of learning that, hey, this was a challenge in this last disaster or in these disasters, and it didn't go well for this state, and let's let's broaden the, the aperture there and make sure that, that all of our customers, so to speak, uh, get the benefit of that. So, so there's a whole process built into the, into the uh, uh, after action process, the training process, the preparedness process, the exercise process, and it all bleeds into that. You're inundated with a lot of information, a lot of data. Uh, during your tenure now, um, going forward, how did data analytics play? Did you use it? Did you? Oh, absolutely. It? And it's growing. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the challenges, again, across government. Um, but it's absolutely growing. One of the things that we use is information in, in the floodplain, for example. We'll work with Geological Survey and other, other agencies, and we can look at the amount of rain that's falling upstream, use their river monitors, and start to work with the state because in four days, that, that flood is going to be downstream uh, where, where the population might be, where the farming area might be. So we really try and use, use that data. We'll use the data to predict um, and, and, and drive what our response would be. We'll look at the population to say, how many diaper kits do we need is, is, you know, versus a, a standard? How many kosher meals do we need versus regular meals? And we try and use that to make sure that we have enough of what we need in the initial response. So we try and use that data to really affect and help the survivor. But it's, it's growing. To, it's a challenge, uh, let's be honest. I think we across government are facing that challenge, uh, all facing that challenge. Uh, using data analytics in the most effective way possible uh, is both a business process change yep. and a technology change. We have to have access to the data and know how to use it and know how it, how it affects our processes. So, you know, uh, as you've gained some perspective um, since you've left – uh, FEMA. Um, I was wondering, uh, can you share from your perspective any lessons that the agency has learned from recent responses to the Houston, say Puerto Rico? Mm-hmm. And and where I'm going with this in particular, if we can narrow it down, is how important in these situations, how, how important do these situations illustrate the critical need of local government authorities to anticipate disaster relief. Yeah, that, that's an important point. When you look at the breadth and scope of this past hurricane season that we went through, it's not just one storm. I mean, what, what most people don't realize is we had 33 active disasters that we were supporting prior to this hurricane season beginning. So that's, a, that's obviously our mission, and that's what we were doing. As the disasters happen, we have to reallocate resources from, to the immediate need because our first mission is life safety. You know, we, we have to help save lives uh, and make sure we, we, put, uh, uh, we put our resources there. Now, as we talked about earlier, the most effective support for a survivor is as close as it can get. So the state and local uh, authorities are frankly the most effective. They are more capable in the sense that they know the local population, they know the local needs, they know the local processes, they have relationships established. It's awfully hard for an agency to come in in a few hours from the federal government and and start to do that. So the most effective support is the survivor, him or herself, to be prepared. 
then the locality, then the state, and then the federal government. Our job is to come in and support the state and fill in the cracks that they're being overwhelmed by. Because, you know, relatively small disaster, they might handle just about everything. We might be there for a little bit of help, but they pretty much have it all under control, a well-prepared state. The larger and more complex the disaster, or maybe the broader it is, it affects multi-states, that's where FEMA really comes in and starts to fill in those cracks where the state becomes overwhelmed with the resource demands. And that's where the federal government can come fill in. But that's the relationship that that is the best suited to support the survivor, is that the state and local officials are there to support the survivor. And then we are there to support the state and local officials and filling in those areas where they get overwhelmed. So, Dave, this may be an unfair question, but given your your, your background, your perspective, maybe you could give us insight, um, maybe behind the curtain. How does FEMA plan for the next disaster? Well, I, I think we've talked about that yeah. a little bit. Uh, we have a preparedness division that Dan Kanuski will actually be the head of right now. He's the acting administrator, deputy administrator, I'm sorry. Uh, Katie Fox is the acting deputy administrator for preparedness, uh, national protection. And uh, and that's their mission that is, the is mission. to really look at what's coming down the road. They have the exercise division. They have the uh, the training. So they'll, they'll take that and outreach to the local first responder and communities to the state uh, emergency management offices, and they run exercises and training to, for their staff. So that's the first step. That information is fed from our response and recovery group that really is doing uh, the actual response and recovery, and they have to be tightly zippered in the organization to make sure that we know Again, the after-action reports, what's gone well and what hasn't gone well? What were the challenge in this locality versus another? And so they have to work very closely together. And people often don't talk about FIMA, the Federal Insurance and Mitigation Agency that is within um, uh, FEMA. But that's a terribly important organization in this regard, too, because water can be Frankly, water is more destructive than wind. If you look at the damages through most storms, it's water damage that is oftentimes the worst. Um, and, and what many people may not know is if you get flood insurance that, and you buy it through a local nationwide or, or Allstate or something like that, actually, that is just a FEMA policy that they're, that they're selling. So, so we're the insurance provider for flood. We also do mitigation grants through through uh, FIMA to actually help localities, state and local um, uh, areas uh, prepare their structures to withstand floods uh, in future years. And uh, there's been a recent report uh, that has been issued that uh, shows, and I believe, I'm not, not 100% sure this is the right uh, quote, but I think it's for every dollar we spend in mitigation up front saves us $6 wow. downstream in the recovery process. Um, but that's a that's a sort of a generational kind of spend. Uh, for it will take years. But if if and one of the things that I know uh, Mr. Long uh, was talking about, and he's talking to folks on the Hill and the administration about this, is to try and move some of that expenditure uh, to the front end of the process to help prepare uh, localities, state and local um, uh, structures for disasters that may occur, whether it be flooding or tornadoes or hurricanes, whatever the case, or earthquakes, and spend that money in mitigation efforts up front. Because then one, two, five, ten years later, when a disaster will will inevitably hit somewhere, those uh, areas will be better prepared and the recovery will be better, faster, cheaper, and the survivors will be better served. Dave, what will you remember most about your time in government service? I think it's the people. I, I hate to I hate to go back to the same uh, the same anecdotal stories, but it's the people. Um, 
when I worked at Seacom uh, in Fort Monmouth, uh, uh, you know, we're sitting there miles and miles and miles a- away from the uh, the theaters in in Europe and Korea, but we were buying equipment that actually supported uh, those exercises. And we had a mix of civilian and military folks there. And it was palpable. I mean, folks there really understood what they did, supported um, the warfighter. They, and this was back in the early 80s. And it was, it was uh, enlightening to me uh, to actually watch that. And it was a somewhat of a privilege to, to sort of grow up in my career in that environment because it really got bred into me that that point that what we were doing, even though it was quote-unquote back office, was really critically important to uh, the warfighter. Um, you go to the IRS, which was the next phase of my career, and again, uh, the IRS itself is sort of back office. It, it funds the – it's the financial financial arm of, of government, and uh, and it was pretty pretty easy to see that the more effective we were in administering the tax system, then the more effective the treasury and the government could be in in spending those funds uh, for the missions uh, uh, that the that the government has, and and the level of dedication again when you when you think a little bit more standard uh, but somewhat similar to FEMA in the seasonal aspect, we'd bring in thousands of people who were dedicated to making filing season go well. Um, that was our hurricane season, so to speak, to bring it in FEMA vernacular. Um, during that January to May timeframe, it was all hands on deck to make sure filing season went well because that's the interface to the general public, to the tax bank public. And it was a real challenge. But, uh, but you would just see people truly dedicated and working uh, inordinately hard and um, through sometimes very difficult circumstances to make sure that that, that went well. And then pr- pretty much the cherry on top was, was FEMA. Uh, I gave you a couple of stories earlier about the amount of time that people would work, uh, the amount of time they were with their families, the the efforts that they put in, and and you could really sense how much they felt uh, for their mission, for the survivor. I mean, they really understand it and they get it there. Um, it was really a, 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 an honor to work there. You, 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 when you tell people you work for FEMA. You could see it in their eyes. You know, when I when I moved my career to that, and I told people I worked for FEMA, uh, they're oh, that's really cool. Uh, I would love to do that, and I would love to support people that way. Um, it's it's a very uh, enriching organization to work for in that regard. You kind of touched on what my next question, but thirty four years plus, uh, you ended it recently. Your tenure, public service. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Um, this is going to sound sort of old school, but I'm going to give you the same advice my father gave me. He was a public servant as well. Um, he, he, he told me to, to view the federal government workforce as a giant stadium, that you could get your ticket and go in. And, you, and, and I started, as I said earlier, as a GS3 clerk typist and mill percent. So that meant I was sitting in the end zone seats in the, in the fourth, uh, fourth deck in the back row. Um, and I ended up sitting at the 50-yard line, you know, down, maybe not in the front row, but pr- pr- pretty close. So once you're in the stadium, the, the breadth and scope of work that is available to do, I mean, I never would have expected to be working in a leadership position for the Federal Emergency Management Agency when I started my career. Um, but the opportunities that are available to people coming into the public sector 
are enormous. There's almost nothing that the federal government doesn't do in some form or, or fashion. It's involved in education. It's involved in emergency management. It's involved in um, uh, Department of Defense and state. And just think of the breadth and, and scope of the missions that the federal government has. If you're interested in serving you know, your fellow uh, citizens, uh, there is something that you can do in federal government. It's, a, it's really a, a great career. The sense of uh, the sense of fulfillment and service you get when you see something that you've done actually get implemented, whether it be something sort of esoteric like a tax administration change or, you know, some of the – when we converted, when I first got to CECOM, we were going from analog to digital yeah. and – and the amount uh, of effort that that took, but then the capabilities that that gave to that soldier in the field uh, was enormous. And, and you could sense that when, when you talk to those folks at the test centers and they'd come back and say, wow, this is really going to change the way I do my job in the field. It was, uh, it was very rewarding. And then you know, the, the ultimate of that is in FEMA when, when you're actually giving people food, blankets, water, diaper kits, um, you know, uh, a hotel room to stay in when their home is gone. I mean, that's if you don't if you don't get uh, fulfillment from that, then there's something wrong. So so there is something for almost anyone who wants to serve um, their their fellow citizens. And it can be extraordinary fulfilling and, and rewarding um, but it's a challenge. It's it's hard work, as I said. Uh, there are oftentimes long hours. I, I've had the privilege of working with some of the smartest, hardest working people ever. I mean, truly, I would stack them up against anybody in private sector. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I really, I really would. Um, and and they do it for 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 the purpose of of service. And there's something fulfilling and rewarding about that. So I I, I would advocate uh, public service. Um, the other part is with. Uh, uh, again, I'm sort of old school here. Uh, with the old retirement system, the financial incentives were a little bit different. With the new retirement system, you don't have to make the federal career, federal job a career. You can come in and out, and there's some benefit to that. So you could come in, and you don't have to come in at the beginning of your career like I did and make the whole thing your career. You could come in mid-career. So my encouragement is if you've established yourself in in uh, private sector and you're doing well and you enjoy it but you want something different – Try public sector because you can come in mid-career, add value, and you're not you're not quote unquote stuck in that federal job for the rest of your career. You can you can go back out, um, and then the the quite frankly the agency gets the benefit of the experiences that you've gained in the private sector, and you can bring a maybe a fresher look to something that we might not have seen. So uh, whether in your beginning of your career, the middle of your career, the end of your career, there's something that you can add to public sector, and I encourage people to to uh, consider it. Well, Dave, thanks for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about your career. Oh, thank you. Um, but I want to thank enjoyable. you uh, for those uh, 34 years of dedicated service to the country. Thank you. Wouldn't trade it for, for a minute. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with David Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How were the initial cross-agency priority goals, or CAP goals, implemented? What has been the impact of the initial CAP goals? How can we improve the implementation of the next round of CAP goals? 
Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with John Kamensky, senior fellow with the IBM Center and author of Cross-Agency Collaboration, a case study of cross-agency priority goals, next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.